you would, please join me now in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 51. As we turn to God's Word, let's pray and ask Him to open up His Word to our hearts. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving us alone. You have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell with us. We thank you for your word, which comes to us from the outside. We pray, Father, that your word and spirit would have their way with us, that um, we would know more and more um, who our Savior is and what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, follow him to the place that he has prepared for us. So be pleased, Father, to meet with your gathered people, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm 51, along with Psalm 23, and I think Psalm 100, are probably among the most familiar psalms in the Bible. And people turn to it, we turn to it for, for, for good reason. But I want to start off making this statement. Um, it is a miracle that Psalm 51 is in the Bible. It's a miracle that Psalm 51 is in the Bible. Why? It's because Psalm 51 has to do with repentance. And repentance, as defined by our shorter catechism, is a saving grace. In other words, it's a miracle. I hope you were able uh, to read a little bit of the background, the historical background for Psalm 51. It's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I want to highlight three key verses from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Um, the end of 2 Samuel, uh, the, the author makes a comment about what David had done. And he says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done, what? He lusted. He stole a man's wife. He committed adultery. He arranged for the murder. He conspired in a way, I mean, he violated commandments 6 through 10 everything dealing with love for neighbor he violated and yes the thing that david had done displeased the lord and remember in second samuel chapter 12 um, just in a similar way as where david had sent for bathsheba the lord sends nathan the prophet to David. And David, of course, tells the story. Nathan tells the story to David about uh, the rich man, the poor man, sheep. And David rightly recognizes who's in the wrong. And he becomes angry and recognizes that that man must die 
for what he has done. And in chapter 12, verse 7, we read this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. In other words, David, this story I've just told you, you are that rich man that stole from this poor man. David recognized what was going on. And you read on to verse 13. David now says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Psalm 51 is the fourth of the seven so-called penitential psalms that here flows from David's encounter with Nathan. Now at times I think we're all, and I'm including me, consumed with what we believe is the sin of others. It may or may not be sin, but we're nonetheless obsessed with getting someone to admit sin. We think somehow we're able to convict someone of sin. But if scripture says anything, it says only God convicts people of sin. You see, sin deceives us. Sin blinds us. It makes us deaf. It's going to take a miracle to open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears. Nathan didn't go in the front door like John the Baptist. He didn't walk up to David and say, David, you're a sinner. What you've done is wrong like John the Baptist did with Herod and others. Nathan went in a side door and God did a miracle. I think sometimes, therefore, we're thinking, well, we've got to be a Nathan. You know, if we can't like, go through the front door, at least go through the side door in people's lives. But I think Psalm 51 will show us we are not so much called to be Nathans as we are called to be Davids. Repentant men and women, boys and girls. I've always um, been encouraged to hear the stories of the unprepared preacher, that's not me today, but um, the, uh, the, un, you know, the preacher gets sick and the elder stands up and he just reads God's word. And you know what happens? People come to faith in Christ. I think that's what happened to Spurgeon, if I remember correctly. He, he, he ducked in a uh, Methodist church, I believe, and heard just an elder reading God's word and he's converted. So I'm going to start off reading slowly. Psalm 51, this intimate, personal confession of sin that in a world where we like to listen in and eavesdrop, here it is before us. And as I read slowly, I want us to all hear the language, hear, as it were, David's heart. I'll start off with the editorial title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. After... The past couple of weeks being in a wisdom psalm and then a kind of prophetic psalm. Here we are into a prayer, a kind of a, a particular lament, a, a penitential psalm. And, and the psalms are songs to God, prayers to God. And did you notice there's some praising, but there's an awful lot of asking, an incredible, immense number of requests asking, pleading, begging. I counted in the English Bible at least 20 requests. Now, all of these requests give evidence of what I believe the process of repentance looks like. Just look with me. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, wash me, let me hear Hide your face, blot out, create, cast me not, take not, restore, uphold, deliver. That's an awful lot of requests in a prayer. Do we pray like that? Do we beg God, plead with him? Now of all of the requests that we hear, 
We're going to focus our attention on verse 12, the first part, this request. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And we're going to use it as an avenue into the entire psalm, the entire song, the entire prayer. And before we go, just notice the pronouns. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David doesn't even say my salvation. He says your salvation, acknowledging that salvation is coming from the outside not in any way able to be welled up from the inside. The request is for the restoration of the joy of salvation. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves this question. Is there any joy in your life right now? I mean, we know the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness tends to be dependent upon circumstances. Joy is independent and irrespective of circumstances, things happening around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say in some of his sermons that, that a joyless Christian is, is kind of a, um, it, 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 um, it's not a good advertisement for the gospel. Are there any expressions of joy coming from your life? In the last 24 hours, ask someone who lives with you, who works with you. Do you see any joy in my life? Well, maybe David's asking for joy to be restored because sin really is a killjoy, isn't it? It is hard to be joyful and hold on to sin at the same time. Sin kills joy, whereas repentance leads to joy, not just on earth, but also in heaven. Recall the parable of the lost sheep, Luke 15. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And if that doesn't get the message across in the next parable, the parable of the lost coin, we read similar words. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, Psalm 51 is the story of a lost man being pursued by and found by God repenting of his sin and finding joy on earth as it is in heaven being restored. David, as we've heard, is is asking, he's pleading, he's begging. Now what, what fuels his request in a word? A twofold knowledge. I think it was last week or the week before I quoted uh, John Calvin in in book one, chapter one of the Institutes of Christian Religion, where he writes this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easily easy to discern. In other words, If you start with knowledge of God, you'll get to knowledge of self. If you start with knowledge of self, you'll get to knowledge of God. It's 
it's the chicken or the egg. What comes first? It's Calvin's way of saying that. Now, what we see unfolding in Psalm 51 is a prayer of David in which he prays based on both of his both the knowledge of God and knowledge of himself. Now, let's listen in, and as we do, we'll see how both objects of his knowledge power his repentance. Now, let's take a note here. It'll be difficult at times to talk about knowledge of God without also talking about knowledge of self. Uh, They're distinct, but of course, they're inseparable. And we're going to begin not with knowledge of God, but rather knowledge of self. David's recognition of who he is. In a word, he knows He's a sinner. Remember, what did Nathan say? David, you are the man. You, David, are the sinner. So this first thing is a recognition of who you are, the knowledge of self. And as we will confess shortly in our confession of faith, part of repentance is you have a true sense of your sin. A true sense of your sin. So, in the verse 12 verses is a confession of sin. David prays deeply and intensely for forgiveness. Notice some of the words he uses. Transgression. It's deliberate rebellion. It's iniquity. It's the idea that my problem goes deep within me. It's part of the warp of my fallen nature. He uses the word sin. Specific wrong. In this prayer of confession, David admits that his sin is deep in its direction. It's deep in its direction. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What? How about sin against um, Bathsheba? Sin against Uriah, her husband? Sin against Joab in conspiring with him? But no, he fundamentally recognizes that all sin toward people is ultimately sin toward God. Yes, we sin against one another and it hurts deeply and it wounds. But it also, every sin against a person, we are despising God. He admits that his sin is deep in its direction. He admits that his sin is deep in its origin. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, David is saying, I'm born in sin. I was actually sinful before I was born. Why? Because I have inherited a sin nature from my first parent, from Adam. You need a proof of original sin? Here it is. You see, David realizes by saying that, that he's not a sinner because he sins. No, he sins because he's a sinner at root, at heart, from birth. So he admits that his sin is deep in its direction. It's deep in its origin and it's deep in its nature. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Right now, David is aware that there is falsehood in his inward being. 
and in the secret recesses of his heart is not wisdom, but foolishness. You see, David is starting to grasp that sin is not so much a matter of outward behavior alone, although of course it is, but rather the inward attitude of the heart that no one else sees but God. And so he knows that it's going to take nothing less than an act of new creation to rescue him, to save him. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me because God, right now, my heart is not clean. It is filthy. It is dirty. Look at all those requests to cleanse, to wash. It's deep in its direction, David says. It's deep in its origin. And it's deep in its nature. It's rooted, not outwardly, visibly, but inwardly, invisibly. David knows himself here. David knows his sin. How well do you know yourself? How well do I know myself? You know, sin is so deceitful, not only do we deceive other people, we deceive ourselves. Think about it. How well do you really know yourself? Well, not only does David express in his prayer in this song an accurate understanding of who he is, in a word, I am sinful, and thus what he needs from God is forgiveness. But he also expresses an accurate understanding of who God is and thus what he can receive from God. In a word, just as he knew he was sinful, he knows God is merciful. And so not only is there a recognition of who he is, kind of the knowledge of self, there's a recognition of who God is, the knowledge of God. Notice the definition of repentance unto life speaks of an apprehension of the mercy of God. A sense of sin on the one hand and an apprehension of the mercy of God on the other. You know, Psalm 51 could have ended after the first six words in the English Bible. Have mercy on me, O God. As my theological mentor said once, if you can find a better prayer than have mercy on me, pray it. David prays on the basis of the covenant mercy and the unfailing love that he already knows but has put aside, covered up. You see, David's confession is not an attempt to gain a relationship with God, but it arises out of a gracious relationship in which he already knows of the covenant mercy and unfailing love of God. You see, David is going to appeal 
to God not on the basis of what he hopes God to be or on the basis of what he thinks God is. He appeals to God on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be. Let's go back to Sinai. Let's go back to Exodus 36. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God revealed himself. That's what he wanted said about who he is. David is following along the lines of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He knows God's faithfulness, God's mercy. He appeals to God, therefore, according to his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Mercy, that free, unmerited favor. Steadfast love, that unchanging love based on a solemn commitment God has made. And he appeals to God according to what he knows God can do. David knows what John would write in his first letter, that that God really does have power to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants God to blot out, to wipe clean the stain of sin. He wants God to wash. He wants God to go and reach into the inner fibers of his nature and purge sin. He wants to be cleansed. He wants sin to be removed. That sin that's a barrier to fellowship. You see, David knows now that God has the power to recreate, to revive, to restore. He prays to God on the basis of his knowledge of who God is. So, Let's ask ourselves this question. How well do we know God? How well do we know God? Interestingly, Job, who was commended by God as being righteous, had to end up when he got questioned about, were you around in creation when I made everything? Were you able to set the boundaries of the sea? You know, brace yourself like a man. Answer. And finally, what happened? Job answered, I had heard about you, but now I see you. And I despise myself and repent in ashes. Well, Job will later see also how God restores him after that time of prolonged testing. So how well do you know God as merciful as one who has steadfast love and who's faithful. Don't get your ideas of God from other people. Get your ideas of who God is from his word. And God will make himself known to you. So in addition to recognizing who he is and acknowledging who God is, David also recognizes what the Lord requires. Aha. Oh. This sounded really too easy. We just appeal to the mercy of God. Well, here in Psalm 51, we also see that David recognizes the sacrifice that God requires. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, David has promised to teach. He's promised to sing. He's promised to declare. Now, how will he be able to do what he says he's going to do? Well, it's going to take a sacrifice. He's got to bring an acceptable sacrifice to God, and that is his prayer of confession. You see, because his prayer is the expression of what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You see, it's no wonder that Psalm 51 comes right on the heels of Psalm 50 in the Psalter. Remember, formalism in the church, hypocrisy in the church. You see, God uses Nathan to expose David to himself as both a formalist and a hypocrite. God doesn't need sacrifices of bulls and goats and blood of this and that. No, what does God need? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Remember what Isaiah the prophet says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. As arrogant and as hard as David was in 2 Samuel 11, he is as low and contrite and humble in Psalm 51. Isaiah ends his prophecy with words along these lines. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know what the difference between King Saul and King David? The word of God came to both of them. Saul didn't respond. David responded. I've often wondered... How can David be called a man after God's own heart? Well, it's pretty clear. David is a man after God's own heart because God is a God after David's heart. All the way to the depth of his heart. And the psalm ends by moving from the personal to the corporate. As David goes, so goes the nation. You see, David was the king, the representative of all the people. He, the way he went, the way the nation went. And even, as Dale Ralph Davis mentions at the end of even Nathan's confrontation with David and David's acknowledgement and repentance, Israel needs a greater king than King David because Israel needs a sinless king to save them. So, another question. How well do you know the sacrifice that God really does require? I mean, 
in chapter in Psalm 50, he didn't need stuff because he's God. Here, he really needs something that only you can give him. Your heart, broken and contrite, lowly, humbled to the dust as the hymn we sang a few minutes ago says. Have you been able to bring that sacrifice to God? Well, let's wrap up by remembering a couple of things. First, repentance that David expresses here. It's a miracle. And repentance will produce otherworldly joy. I mean, David is going to lose his son. David is going to have some of his wives exposed. David is going to end up, the house is going to be divided. There's a lot of consequences to his sin, but there is an otherworldly joy of being forgiven and free. See, Psalm 51 is the story of a lost man being found, repenting, and joy on earth as it is in heaven being restored. David sang this song. Can we sing this song? Imagine a church of people with broken and contrite hearts singing this song. Imagine. Do you think the watching world thinks Christians are people with broken and contrite hearts? Or do they see people that are called Christians um, pursuing worldly power and influence, pursuing political gain? I encourage you to read the something to think about quote. James Montgomery Boyce writes, that a a world that needs not so much the evidence of righteousness in us which they can copy by their own fleshly efforts as they need living demonstrations of God's grace which they need but cannot copy. You see, this kind of humility, this kind of brokenness, this kind of a contrite heart that trembles at God's word, you can't fake it. You can't copy it. The world can copy our outward behavior, but they cannot copy a humble heart because it's supernatural. And so the first thing for all of us to remember is repentance is a miracle. Imagine a church full of people with broken and contrite hearts. What a witness to the world. What a witness to this community. And second and finally, God is ready, willing, and able to restore the joy of your salvation. As far as Psalm 51 goes, some of us here today may need to pray, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Others of us here today may need to pray, oh God, please give me the joy of your salvation. Either way, as Jonah, after running from God, 
and finding himself in the belly of a fish, exclaimed at the end of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his salvation that he gives. Indeed, salvation from sin and death belongs to the Lord and is made known to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, confess, ask, plead, beg, and run to Jesus, remembering that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. A little bit later in John, Jesus had to tell his disciples, until now, You have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and receive. Repentance is a saving grace. It's a miracle. Rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 51. Indeed, repentance, true repentance at the level of the heart, not just outwardly expressed with the hands, takes nothing less than the supernatural work of your spirit. And so, Father, would you be pleased to do that work in all of us? Would you help us Spend most of our time not trying to convict other people of sin, but help, mo- help us most of the time look in the mirror of your word and own up to our own sin. Oh God, be pleased to create in us clean hearts, hearts that are nonetheless broken, spirits that are contrite, people who tremble at your word. Oh, Father, be pleased wherever people are at today to restore to them the joy of your salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.